Money FM 89.3. Best of the evening runway. Eurowatch. Money FM 89.3. Good afternoon. It is the evening runway. I'm Elliot Danker. It's now time to turn our attention to headlines out of the European region. And on the line helping me out is Dr. Samia Puri, who is visiting lecturer in war studies at King's College London. He's also author of the book Russia's Road to War with Ukraine. Dr. Samia, how are you? I'm very well, thanks. Aside from monitoring the news with increasing uh, despair. Other than that, I'm well. Yeah, despair is the word to use, right? I mean, you've got just earlier this week, the EU leaders meeting to discuss the Israel-Hamas war response, political divisions. I mean, there's so much developments since the attack began on October 7th. Doctor, what can you tell us about how radicalized or polarized public opinion is becoming as this continues to drag on? Extremely divisive in different parts of the world, which is one of the really striking things about this. Of course, it's horrifying and devastating for people in Israel and the Palestinian territories. But I've been really struck, you know, talking to friends back in London, for mm. example, mm. how tense things can feel, especially friends who are Jewish and also people who have reacted to a large pro-Palestinian rally. And that is quite a big public order undertaking to keep those things safe. But it's also important to reassure members of the public and people who feel distress or somehow, you know, involved by their sort of connections through heritage or elsewhere to, to what's happening in the Middle East. That is definitely one of the biggest things that I think that is being felt in the UK and, and in other parts of Europe as well. Aside, of course, from the obvious horrifying terrorist attack with those Swedish football fans uh, yeah. who, who were killed. Yeah. But that's a very specific instance of terrorism, which seems to have been induced in that individual by his own emotional reaction to what's happened in the Middle East. And, you know, with that said, right, you wonder how important more than ever is ensuring that you get the messaging right from that government standpoint. It's really, really important because you, you have to speak to the diverse communities that you're in charge of that you're governing and you have to make sure that, that the diverse communities feel that their their emotional questions are being somewhat acknowledged by how you message i think as well it's really important not to be dragged into premature judgments around yeah. things but the most difficult thing especially for governments in, in europe of course the government in the usa and clearly those in the middle east it's about how you're seen to be picking a side or not, yes. which is somewhat inevitable. I think even if you try to walk a fine line between it, these are the countries that are, are very, very closely related. And just very quickly, of course, Europe is extremely closely related to Israel just because of the diaspora flows and the fact that so many people who set up the Israeli state came from Europe and including from Eastern Europe, even from places like Ukraine, mm. huge Jewish communities in Ukraine. Yeah. Here in, in Asia as well, we see that in terms of, you know, taking sides, like you mentioned. I mean, one instance is European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, EU member states uh, having this perception or, or having this claim that she's perhaps overstepped her remit with her unflinching backing of Israel. What's your take on this? Well, I don't know whether there's any right or answer to how you know the European Commission president can approach this because yeah. you have to condemn the terrorism. Yes, that is unquestionable. Yes, and then it's a matter of perceptions to whether through your condemnation for terrorism, others then see you as being excessively pro-Israeli or not being you know taking a sort of a middle ground. But that nuanced message, which is I think the sensible one, that anyone with a temperate you know, view of this can take, which is to condemn the terrorism, but not to condemn all Palestinians. Mm, mm. That's a lot easier said as a message than I think it is 
done as a the overwhelming sentiment that people take away. Others might just see support and sympathy for Israel equals being pro-Israeli, and that may not always be the case. It's coming back down to that messaging, right, Dr. Samia? I mean, one would be forgiven if they can't remember how this conflict began because it's dragged out so many years. But this is the worst escalation we've ever seen. What happens from here? Is it about policy setting? I mean, I know I'm asking a difficult question, but how do you formulate a coherent policy against this conflict? Yeah, just very quickly on forgetting the origins. Of course, it's Mm. over 100 years since the Balfour Declaration 1917, the British mandate, and the terrorism the British experienced from Israeli groups like the Stern Gang, who are trying to kick the British out and increase uh, sort of Jewish immigration. So it's festered ever since, you know, before living memory for anyone, everyone on the planet. Uh, in terms of the sort of the, the wider issue about this being the biggest escalation, it's definitely the biggest loss of Jewish lives yeah. since the Holocaust. Yeah. It's not the biggest security threat the Israelis have Mm. ever faced. They Mm. previously fought wars with some of the Arab states next door to them, Uh, you know, 1967, 1973, 1982 being the key examples. But these days, the threat doesn't come from the the neighboring states who are going to invade them, at least not yet. It comes from these non-state armed groups and Hamas's Mm the most severe threat that the Israeli state has faced. Okay. Dr. Samia, um, let's go back and talk about that deadly attack in Brussels by a rejected asylum seeker from Tunisia. Underlining, of course, challenges for the new EU migration pact and how they will move forward with their policies. I mean, these incidents surely highlight the urgency in managing asylum. I'm, I saw for myself about back in 2016 or so, fallout from uh, Syrian conflict, uh, people in Spain just at the, at, you know, at the train stations, migrants and such. Yeah, this is a really politically toxic issue yeah. in different European countries. It's interesting, actually, across the Western world, because there's a different version of toxic migration okay. political debate in the USA around okay. central... Central America, but in Europe in particular, the populist parties tend to use these instances to increase popular suspicion of migration, in particular migration from Muslim countries. And it's very sad that that is the very specific target, but that that is often the very specific targets. And the argument that tends to be mounted by these populist parties is of differences in values between Mm. people from different heritages which is not very fair because people can integrate after a generation or two very smoothly into many of these European liberal democracies. But I think these horribly distressing instances, such as a terrorist attack, uh, give a very, I think, visceral example that the populists point to to fuel their own political messages. And just one last observation on this. Because of the EU and its open borders, I do tend to find that one of these instances or attacks in one European country is pointed at by... Uh, populists in other European countries. Mm. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if the German AFD party, for example, or you know, the heirs to Marine Le Pen in France, you know, generally use these sorts of instances as a way of, of mounting their challenges to, to more liberal, more centrist political parties. So, so what are you expecting to see as we move forward? You've got EU migration ministers going to discuss migration plans in Brussels. I believe uh, national leaders next week will also participate in such discussions. What do you hope to see moving forward? I think with some of the EU migration discussions, it's actually been about responding to a possible sudden surge of migration, as was seen, as you mentioned, 2016. And that was particularly to do with this 
the exodus in relation to the Syrian war. Yes. And it's not impossible with instability in the Middle East and, of course, the war in Ukraine with, due to Russia's invasion dragging out further, that there could be spikes in migration attempts into different parts of the European Union. So that, I think, is one part. Is With the EU, it's always burden-sharing to be able to respond effectively to a sudden crisis. That is definitely the part of it. And then there's the additional thing, which was uh, pledges to take in different numbers of migrants. But that, I think, is, is a slightly different uh, issue. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think most governments tend to be now very wary of those populist parties yeah. that are pointing at any policies that suggest there will be a large intake of migrants and using that to, to threaten the electoral stability of, of you know, the ruling parties. Mm. Uh, Dr. Samuel, let's talk about Russia. Uh, they are withdrawing the ratification of a landmark deal which is designed to prohibit nuclear testing. I guess this is a bit of an education question. What exactly is the nuclear test ban treaty uh, and how come this is a talking point now? Well, the Russian withdrawal is actually part of the general withdrawal by Russia and in some cases the USA from these old Cold War and post-Cold War deals designed to stabilize the strategic and military situation in Europe. There's been a few that they've withdrawn from. the This particular nuclear test ban deal is quite important. If some of us who remember the 90s might remember the French testing nuclear weapons okay. underwater. Okay. Uh, wow. there's, you know, that, that's always been, you know, one way of testing nuclear weapons is finding, you know, somewhere that you can detonate one. There's another mm-hmm. way of testing nuclear weapons, which is to do, do it actually through computer simulations as well, which is clearly a different way of doing it. But this is, remo- withdrawal from the ban is a, a very difficult moment in nuclear weapons stability around the world. There's actually a lot of investment in nuclear weapons okay. from... Russia, from China certainly, trying to modernize and increase the size of their nuclear weapons arsenals, which is very, very worrying. Americans point, the American government points to this as a very worrying trend in terms of the stability that we started to take more for granted after the end of the Cold War uh, between rivals who have nuclear weapons. And that's not even to mention the countries that have smaller nuclear weapons arsenals, uh, like North Korea, clearly, where you have another set of concerns there as well. Okay. Then, Dr. Samuel, if you don't mind me prodding a little bit, what exactly is the signal here? Is this more a geopolitical signal or should we not discount the fact that this is more about nuclear weapon development? So with the Russians, there's certainly going to be, because the Russians by number have the, by far the largest number of nuclear yeah. weapons in that stockpile. The yeah. Americans are second. Actually, there's quite a big difference. But I think the, the going wisdom is that a lot of the Russian nuclear weapons are quite outdated, their Cold War era okay, stops. Okay. So there is also the possibility of wanting to modernise uh, the arsenals. There's, there's another connected question which no, I don't know the answer to, is what percentage of Russia's nuclear weapons stockpile is actually usable? Because mm. they may have an on-paper number, they yeah. may actually have a very different number that they can deploy on their submarines in their missile silos and you know send up on their on their long-range bombers, which are the three ways that they would have of deploying these weapons. Uh, But then again, I think it's also about the wider geopolitical instability that the world is experiencing. And clearly, Russia is a government at war by its own choice. And that government is also going to be looking at further increases in its military spending. Its military spending has already rocketed up because of its invasion of Ukraine. And it will be thinking about its 
posturing in relation not only to America, but I also think probably to China. Yeah. Even though they're friends and they're, you know, the Russians are selling a lot of their energy to China, they also want to continue to be taken seriously by China rather than being seen to be in a more dependent position and maybe nuclear weapon modernization expansion to be part of how they're perceived in doing that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we spoke last week about the Russian president Vladimir Putin being in Beijing and it's a case of who's holding all the cards as uh, Beijing positions itself as a bit of an international peacemaker in that sense. But there was some footage, rare footage, in fact, of uh, President Vladimir Putin being accompanied by officers carrying the so-called nuclear briefcase. I know I'm coming from a point of speculation, but uh, did you happen to see that footage? No, I didn't see that footage. Of course, <laughs> uh, we've all seen Putin take one of his rare foreign trips. Yeah. This week. Yep. But no, I didn't see that footage in particular. Who knows what was in the briefcase, though? It could have been his lunch. And we're going to have to leave it at that. I've been speaking with Dr. Samir Puri, who is visiting lecturer in war studies at King's College London. He's also author of the book Russia's Road to War with Ukraine. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Samir. Take care and have a great evening ahead. You too. You're very welcome. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at audio.sg or download the audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O, audio at the App Store and Google Play.